Um, I decided to be a little bit ambitious since um, I stopped midway um, and then we're going to have a little bit of supplemental passages. Uh, the vision I have for this class is that we're going to go through the entire Bible, book by book, and um, I really wanted to increase your um, Bible knowledge, familiarity, particularly with the books of the Bible that are not as familiar. Today we're going to tackle two of them, um, and also to spark your interest so that you would want to read more on your own, and then finally to situate the books of the Bible in the grand story of the Bible, right? Um, and always with an eye towards how does this open up the gospel for us. And so uh, let me just very quickly review what we looked at last week, which is the whole story of the Bible. And we can tell the whole story of the Bible um, in this way. God's people were in Egypt. Um, they were not just slaves to Pharaoh, but they were slaves to sin, captives to sin. But then God rescues them with a mighty hand and he brings them to the promised land. Um, the promised land here is, uh, the language of the promised land is really extravagant. It's lush, it's garden-like, and it's supposed to make us think of the Garden of Eden, just as Adam and Eve were once in the Garden of Eden in the, in the presence of God. So now God's people are back in the promised land in the Garden of Eden, which is really a picture of heaven um, which is really a picture of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21-22 at the end of the, the Bible, story of the Bible. Um, it takes a long, long time. Um, the conquest begins with Joshua, but it's a very complicated and difficult story where the people um, half-heartedly attempt this conquest. Uh, they disobey. They're unfaithful. But then uh, through the long centuries, through the book of Judges, finally through King David, God's people at last come into the promised land. All of the enemies are subdued um, and you have this wonderful kingdom of, of uh, peace and prosperity where God's righteous king is in place. Um, but we have to understand that uh, it's, it's telling us um, a deeper story which is that Israel is in the promised land and it's provisional, it's conditional on their obedience, their faithfulness to the covenant of God. So that in a sense, they're re-dramatizing, replaying um, the story of Adam in, in the Garden of Eden, right? So the Mosaic Covenant uh, has all these conditional blessings. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll experience all the curses of um, the curses that you experience in Egypt, famine, plague, um, and then ultimately expulsion, exile, right? And so exile is, uh, is judgment, judgment of sin. Um, it's the fitting punishment. And we looked at last week um, the story of... Okay, I'll go. Kim, thank you so much. <laughs> We're going to try to rotate the responsibility. Last time was Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. So um, that way it'll be fairly distributed to everyone. Um, so... Uh, it's, it's judgment. Um, last week we looked at First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's a really long, multi-century story of God's people's disobedience, of their continued unfaithfulness. Um, God's judgment should immediately come down. Uh, oh, actually, are they sitting in, Sarah? Oh, 
We're going to figure this out before class next time. <laughs> um, that was my mistake. All right. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Um, but um, it takes multiple centuries of continued disobedience. Remember, it starts with Solomon, David's son. Uh, he marries foreign wives who lead his heart away from God, um, introduce idolatry. So, but God sends his prophets. And so this period right here is really the age of the prophets. Um, right here, this is the age of the prophets. Um, they're constantly warning God's people. They're constantly pleading with God's people. Um, they're constantly reminding the people of the uh, covenant. And then finally, they're like prosecutors, right? They say, they, they lay out the case. You've broken the covenant, therefore exile is coming or exile is deserved. Um, there are a few good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are the two most outstanding kings of Judah, but it's really too little too late. Finally, there's exile. But then the prophets promise a return from exile, a restoration uh, from exile. And this restoration is not just going to be a return to the status quo, but it's going to be a glorious restoration. It's going to be better and greater than it ever was. Um, if the problem of exile, if exile is the problem of sin, then that problem of sin is going to be dealt with. There's going to be a forgiveness of sins. The prophets speak about how God will put uh, the sins of the people away. There's going to be a new temple, right? Because in the exile, the temple was destroyed. We talked about the meaning and imagery of that. The temple is the very presence of God among his people, his blessing, his favor to the people. But the fact that the temple is destroyed means that God is no longer with his people. He is no longer favoring his people. But then in the restoration, the temple will be rebuilt. Um, and we'll look at that a little bit later, but the temple, it's not just going to be Solomon's old temple. It's going to be a, a glorious temple, a greater temple. The Davidic king will come back. And this goes back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, I've said this many times. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think, is... Uh, perhaps one of the two most important passages in all of the Old Testament. Because God comes to David and he says, David, um, it's going to be your son. Your son will um, be this righteous king and he'll reign forever and ever. He'll establish an everlasting kingdom. And basically God is saying, um, this, uh, my plan of salvation and rescue is going to be realized through this great king who is your son. So this, this Davidic covenant is finally going to come true in the restoration because in the exile, the Davidic kings were deposed, right? Um, David's family is not wiped out, but they're no longer reigning. They're going to be restored. Um, this Davidic king is going to defeat all of uh, the enemies that um, oppress God's people. And um, in the Bible, it, it, it doesn't say Davidic king. Um, of course, it says the son of David, but it uses another language. It says that he will be the anointed one because um, in the Bible, um, you set aside someone for some special work of God by pouring oil over them. The anointed one 
is where we get the English word Messiah. So this is the Messiah. This is where we get the hope of the Messiah. It's connected to the restoration. Um, a lot of times um, we think of the Messiah as just a savior figure that's separated from anything else, but it's deeply embedded in this cluster of promises that the prophets speak about for the restoration. Does that make sense? So the Messiah is specifically a great king, the son of David. In fact, um, if you look at this uh, Davidic covenant, God says he will be my son. So the, uh, the Israelites would call him the son, uh, the son of God. So this great promised Messiah will be the son of God who will come to restore the kingdom. Guess what happens in the New Testament? Somebody comes along, he claims to be the son of God, and he's talking all the time about what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Do you understand what the people were hearing? They were hearing Jesus is saying the restoration has come, the return from exile, the resumption of the kingdom, the enemies will be defeated. This is why everyone was so shocked when he was crucified. Um, you're supposed to smash the Romans, not be crucified by the Romans, right? And then there's going to be peace and prosperity for the people forever and ever. It's going to be this new heavens, new earth, um, happy story. And so we're looking at the, the doctrine of the restoration. And uh, the people were exiled to Babylon, right? Babylon is east of Eden. It's reenacting the story of Adam and Eve. And then they are supposed to return, and that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is a single book originally, but, we sp but uh, it was split later on. And um, along with Malachi, along with Esther and Daniel, these are the very, very last books of the Bible written. This is how the story ends. Uh, the Old Testament story, if you think of it as a narrative, historical narrative, Ezra and Nehemiah is the end of the story. And uh, uh, it's very significant in that way. And the end of the story is anticlimactic. The end of the story, because remember, the end of the story is supposed to be this, right? This incredible cluster of promises. And when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you're like, oh, that's not what I was thinking was going to happen. Um, I think, unfortunately, Ezra and Nehemiah, at least for us uh, Christians today, it's sort of neglected books. Um, but it's really essential that we read Ezra and Nehemiah in the, in the context of these promises, and then it prepares us for what's happening in the New Testament. And let me make the bold argument that without understanding the point of Ezra and Nehemiah, you cannot understand what's going on in the New Testament. You cannot understand the gospel, the story of Jesus, and so forth. So let me just dive into Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we're also going to look at Esther. Um, I told myself last week that uh, I'm going to give myself an out that I may not cover Esther. I'm going to give myself an out again. <laughs> I may not cover Esther, although I, 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 do, I do want to talk about it. But if, in my opinion, Esther is a very encouraging story. It's a very devotional story. It is not essential to the grand story. Um, that sounds heretical, I know. All right. Um, <laughs> um, Strangely enough, everyone knows Esther, though. <laughs> everyone has read Esther and likes Esther um, for good reason. All right. So um, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah focuses on three, basically three characters, three leaders 
um, in the ex uh, I'm sorry, in the return period. Um, these three leaders are Zerubbabel, who rebuilds the temple. He's um, one of the first governors of um, the Ju uh, province of Judah um, under the Persian uh, Persian Empire. Um, then Ezra comes. He's a he's a Torah scribe. Um, he's basically a Bible teacher, so he teaches the people the law. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, Nehemiah, who um, rebuilds the uh, walls of Jerusalem so that the people are protected. And the whole point of uh, the story, as you read the saga of these three uh, characters, and I think partially, by the way, reason why Ezra and Nehemiah is not super scintillating is because a lot of it is letters. Um, a lot of it is uh, the Persian king writes this very long letter saying, this is what I want. I want to rebuild the, uh, the temple and so forth. And then they have some trouble. Um, so there's some opposition. By the way, the opposition is from the Samaritans. This, this explains a great deal why there was so much animosity between uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the mixed, uh, intermarried um, Jewish people with the, uh, with the uh, local Canaanites and all sorts of other peoples. But... Um, it, it, in that sense, it, it, it doesn't seem very exciting, but it's extremely essential. All right, so um, the whole point of Ezra and Nehemiah is that this is the thesis, right? If you're going to get anything, this is, this is what I want you to get. That this restoration that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah is deeply disappointing and incomplete. The prophet spoke of this restoration of Israel in extremely lavish extremely um, um, lush, overwhelming, glorious terms, and it is a pale, pale shadow of that. So let me just give you a flavor of some of the promises because um, we're going to look at this in great detail when we get to the prophets section. We're going to spend two weeks on the prophets, the prophetic writings. Um, this is the major theme of the prophet. I, I would say there's two major themes in the prophets. You can, you, can, you can almost split every prophet book into two parts. The first part is a catalog of all the sins of God's people, why they deserve judgment and exile. And then the second part is always the promise of restoration. And so they, they, there's all kinds of imagery and um, descriptions. So let me just read you one passage. This is in the supplemental. Isaiah 49. Um, Isaiah 40 through, 40, 40 through 55 is all about the restoration. It's probably the most famous passage on the restoration. It begins very famously, Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people. Um, which, by the way, our guest preacher, Brian Kay, he'll be preaching on this passage. We did not coordinate, but the, they just so happened to be that way. Um, but let me read you Isaiah 49. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. Right? Why? Because the people of God, they're crying out. They're in agony. They're in pain. I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land. So remember, uh, the promised land has been desecrated. It has been emptied out. Um, it has been conquered. I will restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. You know what the inheritances were? Um, if you read the book of uh, Joshua, all of God's people were allotted um, land in the promised land for each family. All of that has been wiped out and destroyed. And so God is going to restore those desolate inheritances to say to the captives, these are the Babylonian captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. 
They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. So it's this incredible language of, of prosperity and lushness, like returning back to the Garden of Eden. Um, he who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Now listen to this. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. What do you think that imagery is talking about? I will, I will turn my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. What do, what do you think that language is talking about? This is before the restoration. So what's, what's got to happen for the restoration to occur? Yeah, so the people have to make a long thousand mile, actually I think it's 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. They have to make an 800 mile journey on foot, down valleys, up mountains. And God is saying, I'm going to make it like this smooth highway. It's going to be no troubles. Um, See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Aswan is a, a word for Egypt. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And so that's some of the language of the prophets. But the reality is a pale shadow of what actually happens. And so we're going to dive into the Ezra text. The first text we're going to read is Ezra chapter 3. This is when the temple is being rebuilt. It takes about 20 years. Um, because there are multiple interruptions because of opposition from the local people, Samaritans. Um, they, have to, they have to keep asking for permission from the Persian kings. Um, but the foundation is laid down in Ezra 3. So we're going to read Ezra 3. And then I think Ezra 3, of all the passages, I think Ezra 3 captures the feeling you're supposed to have about the restoration, the historical restoration. Uh, Let me read to you. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, this is the new temple, right? The second temple. Um, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments come forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David, David, King of Israel. So they laid down the foundation, right? Which is the most essential step. Um, And then they have like, a big party. They, 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 they gather God's people and they're going to have this incredible celebration because it's happening. The restoration is happening as prophesied, as <laughs> promised, right? This is what happens. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love. You know that word steadfast there is chesed. It means covenant love. God is faithful. He kept his promises for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. You know, try to imagine this scene. They've laid the foundation. It's finally coming true. And everyone's like, ha, everyone's so happy. Yes, Winnie? This is literal, not symbolic. Yeah, this is literal. This actually happened. This is a historical narrative. not the first one being the Solomon one. Solomon's temple was the first temple, which was destroyed. Um, yes, by the Babylonians um, during the sacking of Jerusalem. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And then here it is. This is the key. Verse 12 and, 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 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, 
who had seen the first house. So these are people who remember, who were alive during the sacking of Jerusalem. They must have been teenagers at this point, or even old children, or, or even children. And they remember the temple, the first temple. Um, where am I? Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So that, that, there it is. It's this very poignant scene. There's all this calamitous noise. There's all this um, um, clamorous noise. There's all this... Um, uh, loud uh, kind of but you can't quite tell is it crying or is it rejoicing and the answer is because it's both it's mingled together and that kind of ambiguous response perfectly captures the restoration the reason why they're crying is because the foundation is shoddy the foundation is vastly inferior to what was done during the time of Solomon it's, it's uh, second-rate craftsmanship. It's done in haste. Um, it's not as nearly as big or extravagant. And remember, the new temple was supposed to be this incredible, like it was supposed to blow away Solomon's temple. And yet, it's not. Um, and so here I want to kind of explain a little bit more deeply why people were expecting this incredible new temple. Um, it's all through the prophets, especially Ezekiel. Um, a large middle section of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, is all about this new temple. Um, and let me just read to you one section, Ezekiel 43. Um, a crucial element of the temple is that God's glory would come and settle into the temple. God's presence would return. Um, this is called the Shekinah glory. Um, has The Shekinah glory, it's also called, um, the, the, the word Shekinah is actually not in the Hebrew Bible, but it's a rabbinic word. It means, it's talking about how God's glory cloud settled inside the temple. And it, the description of it in the Bible is very strange. It's this brightness and it's this, um, it's this glory, it's this majesty, and it just symbolizes the presence of God settling into the temple. Um, in the Bible, it's usually described just as a glory cloud. Um, so let me read it to you, Ezekiel 43. This is in the supplemental uh, text. And behold, this is a prophecy. This is what he's, he, he has a vision, right? Um, will come. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. I mean, just imagine the scene. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up, that's Ezekiel the prophet, and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That was what was supposed to happen in this new temple. This parallels what happened in the first temple. In the first temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, let me read it to you. This is when Solomon dedicates the temple, right? They build the temple. 
Um, and then he has, a, he has a dedication. Listen to this. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Same description, by the way, with the tabernacle. Leviticus 9.22. A glory cloud settles into the temple the tabernacle, because it shows that God's presence, God's favor, God's love is now back with the people. But what happens in the description of the new temple, the temple that Zerubbabel um, oversees the building of, there is no description, there is the absence of any glory cloud. And what is that supposed to tell us? It's supposed to tell us the new temple doesn't happen. Yes, the building is there, but God hasn't come back. That was very, very um, poignant and well understood. The temple is back, but it's an empty temple. There's no presence. Um, and this helps, uh, uh, this, this helps you to understand what happens in the New Testament, right? When the New Testament occurs, um, Jesus goes around and he starts to talk about himself as if he is the temple, right? Remember John, it's here again in your supplemental bullet, uh, supplemental handout. In John 1.14, 1, 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is uh, the word tabernacle. He tented with us, right? So it's specifically saying Jesus is the, the true tabernacle. And then in John 2, Jesus says something really scandalous. He, Jesus said to the, uh, the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's, and then it's, it goes on to say commentary. He was talking about himself. So, so the new temple then, right? If you, if you read it with New Testament eyes, is actually Jesus. The prophets were telling the truth. It's going to be a glorious temple. It's going to be a temple greater than Solomon. God's presence is going to be there. In fact, if you read um, Ezekiel, it says that the nations will come pouring in. Um, uh, it says the house of God will be a house of prayer. That's what Jesus got so angry, right? The, the money changes because um, they were keeping the Gentiles away. But um, it, they were all along talking not about a building, but about, about Jesus, the Son of God. Um, with the people. And then we, the church, let me just say this very quickly. We, the church, are the body of Christ. And so we then are the temple. Um, I'm not going to read the passages, but there's actually several passages that talk about the church being the temple of God. So then the temple in the New Testament becomes a mobile, human, organizational thing that moves around the globe and takes the presence of God out to the world. And every time the people of God congregate, that's the temple, right? That's God's presence is with us. Um, so let me just continue on. So the whole point of, of Ezra and Nehemiah is this, that the exile, the return from exile, there is a return. People are no longer captives in Babylon, but it is a pathetic shadow of the reality. So this is the actual exile, um, actual restoration. According to Ezra... Nehemiah. And then we're supposed to feel this gap. That's the point. Um, and it shows you that uh, the, for the people of God, the exile never ended. So this thing continues on and on. This never happens. 
the people are perpetually in exile. Because what's the essence of exile? The essence of exile is that they're captives to some foreign evil empire. God's people never experience true independence. Right? First, there's the Babylonian, the per, uh, Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Right? The New Testament opens, and they're still in exile. They're still under this oppressive pagan king. Um, the Davidic king never comes back. Where is this Messiah? Where are God's people? I mean, why, why aren't the enemies defeated? Where is this uh, forgiveness of sins? And we'll talk about that more later. How come sin isn't dealt with? The problem of sin and so forth. And so... Uh, the people are awaiting this glorious return, and that's why the New Testament opens with people waiting. Um, the first uh, gospel written almost certainly was the gospel of, of uh, sorry, Mark. Mark 1.1, it's not in your, anywhere in the handouts. Let me just read it to you. Mark 1.1 quotes Isaiah chapter 40. Remember Isaiah 40? One of the, probably the most famous of the uh, return passages, restoration passages. He, Mark 1.1 quotes, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Talking about John the Baptist. So it quotes this restoration, return passage, prophecy, speaking about John. What is Mark 1.1 saying? Mark 1.1 is saying, this is the real restoration. The return from exile begins now with John the Baptist. All right? Um, any questions before we press forward? Yes? So the second temple, was, was it the human interpretation that they thought that they needed to rebuild a, a building? No, it was, it was, it's not that it was a human interpretation. They were called to, so like Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple. Was he like, was he wrong? No, he was, he was doing faithfully what, um, God was leading him to do, but the whole point is that it was, it was insufficient, incomplete, inadequate, and ultimately needs a greater fulfillment. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Any other questions? Do you expect the temple to be physically rebuilt in the new world? Um, the, the, uh, the description of the new heavens and the new earth uh, very pregnantly, very uh, shockingly says, there is no temple. Um, this would have been shocking to Jewish people because um, if, you, if you read the gospel accounts, even the disciples, they're very proud, they're very happy about Herod's temple. Herod, by the way, um, takes the second temple and he basically redoes the whole thing. And he tries to fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy. He, he, um, he basically like doubles the size of the whole complex. He, he lays down the finest marble stones and everything because he's trying to claim the mantle of, of the Messiah, right? He's trying to say, I'm, he, I'm him. Um, and so the Jewish people were extremely centered on the temple. Um, and so for Revelation 21-22 to say there is no temple would have been shocking, would have been would, incomprehensible. The Jewish people to this day, at least Orthodox Jews, are still mourning the loss of the temple. That's why they go to the Wailing Wall, which is just the remaining wall of the, of the foundation, basically. It's not even the temple itself. And they're waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. But um, in Revelation 21-22, it says there is no temple, but in the center is the Lamb. So the Lamb is the temple. Jesus is the temple. So uh, we'll go on. Um, let's read. Uh, I threw in an extra passage since I thought we had time. Um, I think it's okay. Ooh. Uh, 
Oh, all right. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna read it anyway. I'm gonna just treat Esther badly. All right. <laughs> Um, let's read Ezra chapter 9. So this is the story of Ezra. He comes back as a Torah scribe to teach God's people. Um, very fun story. Fun for me at least. All right. Uh, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. That's Ezra. By the way, it's an interesting quirk of Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know if it's quirk, but it, it's written like memoirs. So it's written in the first person. Um, uh, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men had been foremost. So let me just explain really quickly. So what happens is Ezra comes to teach God's people. Remember, this is the restoration. And so he, he, he gets a report. And the first thing he's told is there's a massive, massive problem of intermarriage, right? Uh, this is strictly forbidden in the Torah. Um, you are not to marry non-believers. You're not to marry people who do not worship and love the God of Israel. But this is rampant. Not only was this rampant, but it was being led by the leaders, the officials and chief men. Listen to Ezra's response. I love this. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak. And by the way, clothing was extraordinarily expensive. So you have to imagine, it, um, it's hard for us because clothing is so cheap for us, but imagine like getting a tailored suit. You've spent $3,000 on a tailored suit. That's almost the equivalent of what clothing was like. <laughs> he takes his tailored suit. He just rips it up. I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard. I, I, I don't know how that would feel. And sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra, you just see him in deep distress. He comes, he just sees the people are just as bad. Remember, this is the exact sin that led to exile, Solomon and so forth. Um, let me read the next passage. Uh, this is Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13 is the last chapter. What happens is you have this exciting story in Nehemiah's 1 through 12. They're rebuilding the wall because of, because of the opposition of the Samaritans. Half of the men have to like have swords strapped to their, to their uh, waist to guard the men who are building the wall. They finally build the wall. They have this incredible celebration. They have a covenant renewal ceremony. All the people say, we will obey God. Things are different now. <laughs> um, and so then what happens is in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah goes around and he does a city inspection, right? This is sort of like, I, I almost sort of think of it as like a victory tour. He's like, oh, we're back. We're back in the land. So he tours around the city. And he finds the temple being desecrated. He finds the tithes being neglected, the Levites not receiving their um, food. And then let me read to you, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And then he says to them, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Right? He's saying, the 
the sacking of Jerusalem, the Babylonians. It was because we were Sabbath breakers. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And then let's go to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. By the way, Ezra comes about 20 years before Nehemiah. So, so Ezra is like so distressed. He says, what are you doing? Why are you marrying foreign wives? And the people say, my bad. We won't do it anymore. We promise. 20 years later, this is what happens, right? Um, I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Those are the... Uh, if you'll remember, Ashdod is the Philistine city. These are all the surrounding Canaanite city, uh, regions around Israel. And then Nehemiah says, I confronted them and cursed them. I like his response a little better, actually. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. No longer his hair. Now he's going after the people's hair, right? He's like berating them. What are you doing, right? Um, and I made them take oath. In the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? So it's an incredibly point. And by the way, the end. That's how, Ezra, that's how Nehemiah ends. End of story. <laughs> Old Testament ends 400 years of silence and then the New Testament. So it's this incredibly poignant image of, of um, Nehemiah, who's a very godly man who loves the Lord. He's trying to lead his people into obedience and, and, and to live out this promised restoration. And he's like beating the people, parading the people. Um, and that captures the restoration. That captures the return from exile. And so that leads us to, I think, a discussion of, of uh, holiness and obedience. It shows us the necessity of the new covenant um, the Old Covenant failed. The Old Covenant is, here's the law. Let me clearly teach the law. And, and now when you, when you realize how clear it is, you will obey. The Old Covenant fails. So now we need a New Covenant. And what is the New Covenant? God will put His Spirit in God's people. Um, He'll take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Um, it furthermore makes us think about what is the very purpose of the law. So I put in a supplement. I really like Galatians chapter 3. Um, if the law cannot make us good, then what good is it for? Let me just read it to you, and I'm not going to make very much comment on it, but I just love Paul's explanation. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, right? if the law could save, if the law could make us holy, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. right? But it doesn't. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. That's a very um, unusual expression. It just means that we're prisoners of sin. So that the promise by faith in, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, he's talking about the, the gospel proclamation in the, in the New Testament. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, right? In other translations, it's a tutor, schoolmaster. The law is basically there to help us, prepare us for Jesus Christ in the New Testament until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So that's the whole point. The whole point of this whole saga, Egypt, then uh, King David and uh, Israel, and then experiencing the exile, all of this, all of this 
was preparing us, all Adam and Eden, all of this was preparing us for this lesson. Thousands of years passed by, um, multiple books, hundreds of years, uh, I mean, I mean uh, um, um, uh, what is it, uh, dozens of kings and so forth, all of it to tell us human beings cannot save themselves, right? That it is not by human merit that we will enter the kingdom of God only by grace, only if God does a miraculous saving work through Jesus Christ on our behalf and he gives us the spirit. So that's the answer. Um, I will try to hit Esther, but let me first open it up for questions. Any questions? Yes. I feel like the disappointment in the restoration really captures um, how it feels now in this age. Mm. You know, like, so Christ has come, the Messiah has done his great saving work, but if you enter his places of worship on Sundays... <laughs> Where's the Shekinah glory, right? <laughs> after the body of Christ, the new temple of Yes, I, I could really... I can really resonate with Nehemiah, right? <laughs> uh, I want to tear your hairs out. What are you doing? <laughs> Why won't you obey the Lord? <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like we're in a second period of, of like a giant gap between the full restoration. Yes. So this is a really good point. Um, so in Christ, we're experiencing restoration. Yes. Right? All the fullness. The Davidic king comes at last. But remember... Remember, Jesus makes this very ambiguous statement to Pilate. When Pilate says, are you the king? Jesus says, well, you say so, right? Um, so it's a very ambiguous kingship. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, in a spiritual sense, you know, we have the, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Um, but not yet. We're awaiting the resurrection. We're awaiting the true glorious return. It's very interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses the church as exiles. So what is that saying? It's saying that in a sense, we're still here nevertheless. Not in the sense that our sins are not dealt with and we're still waiting for the Davidic king, but in the sense that we have yet to experience the fullness. Like, wh why is the enemies not yet defeated? Who is our ultimate enemy? Not the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's Satan and his minions, the forces of darkness. They're still roaming, right? Prince is still the, the, uh, the prince of this air. So we're still waiting for him to be subdued, right? To be under the heel of the Davidic king. We're still waiting for true peace, true prosperity, healing, restoration. That's coming waiting for the return of the king. So what the prophets never spoke about, but which only we, we realize in the New Testament, is that the coming of the king is in two stages. He comes once in weakness, he'll come again in strength and glory. So we're in, we're in between this gap period. So we're still experiencing the gap. Even now. Uh, Winnie? So I can only imagine Nehemiah is trying to do what God tells him to do. Yes. But... He's seeing us falling short, right? His people. Yeah. And like he died thinking, like, where's that new heaven? You know, yeah. The, the story ends with him, you know, and a lot of people think it was written by Nehemiah. I mean, obviously it's in first person, so at least this is his memoir. But, you know, people think it's either written by Ezra, maybe, or Nehemiah. The argument is mostly for Ezra. So that's how he chooses to end the story. The end. Nehemiah beating the people. Yeah. Yeah. But the same thing is, it's just like, it makes me think, because Jordan the other day was reading a, you know, about Adam and Eve, you know, Eve and go, 
she goes, is Adam going to heaven? I go, huh, does he know Christ? No, I don't think, he, you know, like I'm thinking the same thing is that these people before Christ, you know, before the new temple in their lifetime, they can see they are left with this. But they're longing, yeah. So the longing is their faith. They're waiting for the Davidic king. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm gonna, next week I'm going to preach on uh, Simeon. Uh, this, uh, this is a Christmas story. Simeon's at the temple. And it says that he's been waiting. Waiting to see the Messiah. So he, uh, it, it, he's a perfect picture of the pious, devout Jewish person waiting and waiting. And then rejoicing when the king at last comes. And this is why it was so pregnant. It, was, it, it, felt, it, it felt like a thunderbolt when Jesus kept saying, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. Now we, we sort of spiritualize it. We're like, oh, Jesus is talking about the spiritual you know, kingdom of God. Everyone spoke of the kingdom of God. Nobody spoke of the kingdom of God unless they meant this. Right? And this is why it was seditious. This is why the Romans were like, what is this kingdom you're talking about? Oh, the Davidic, Messianic kingdom? We know what to do with people like you. So when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, it just had incredible resonance. People were longing because they were under Roman oppression. They were suffering. So, any, any, any more questions? All right. Esther. Esther in five minutes. Three minutes. Okay. Um, so Esther is the story, along with Daniel, of the exiles who remain in Persia. And it's very famous, uh, famous for not having any mention of God anywhere in its pages. Um, the narrator never says God. None of the, uh, the central figure, or none of the figures say God in their speeches. Very unusual. Only book in the Bible that's like that. There are no miracles in Esther. There's no prophets. There's no angels. It just seems like a very, I don't know, almost like a secular pedestrian story. Um, and yet, it's the story of God's care for his people from destruction. Because what happens is, Haman, which is the chief villain of the story, he decides that he's going to target the Jewish people for annihilation, extermination, not just in Babylon, but throughout the uh, Persian Empire. So this is going to be the end of God's people. They're going to be wiped out because of Haman. But then God rescues them out of certain destruction. And the whole story of Esther is really speaking to this period, right? The exile period seems really dark. Where is God? Why is he silent? He doesn't seem to be doing anything. You know, God was so active with Elijah and Elijah and Moses. Why isn't God doing mighty works? And the whole story of Esther is showing us that God is in complete control He's um, caring for his people, but in a silent, hidden, mysterious way. So this is the doctrine of providence. When God is most hidden, he is still active and at work in our lives. And God's way is often hidden, often mysterious, but it is always good and wise. And remember I said that we're still here, actually. right? Peter calls us exiles. So in a sense, we're still, we're still, we're a minority of believers surrounded by pagans, waiting for the restoration. That's us. And just like Esther, just like Daniel, um, we don't see God's miracles. Where are God's miracles? I feel like evangelism would be so much easier if we had miracles. But there are no miracles, no prophets, no angels. God seems silent and hidden, but yet God is still at work. And so that's the story. If you read the story, it's a, it's a story of marvelous, seemingly impossible coincidences, I guess. Um, the, the, the Persian uh, king, Ahasuerus, um, that's his uh, Persian name. 
His uh, Greek name is uh, Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, that's the, that's the guy. Um, so uh, Xerxes, who is most famous for losing the war against the Greeks, but Xerxes, he becomes dissatisfied with his wife Vashti, so he decides to hold a beauty pageant. And then uh, Esther, who is Jewish, but who hides her Jewish identity, she happens to just get chosen right before this whole drama of Haman deciding to wipe out the Jewish people. Then there's another story of Mordecai. Um, Mordecai, who is sort of like a moderate, middling official in the uh, imperial court, he somehow uncovers a plot to kill the, the king. He, he thwarts it, but he's never rewarded. And then one night, the, the king, he can't sleep. He just can't happen to sleep. He just says, I know I'll pass the time. Read me some old uh, logs and uh, records and chronicles. And so he reads about Mordecai. Oh, what happened to Mordecai? Did, how did I reward him? What? He wasn't rewarded? You don't say. So who, who happens to come into the court at the time? It's Haman. Hey, Haman, I really want to reward this man. He did something really great for me. I really want to show him my favor. Haman thinks it's him. He's like, let me tell you how to reward him. And then the reward is basically put, put your royal robe on him. Um, put him on your royal horse and then have your leading official lead him around the city saying, um, this happens to the man whom the king favors. The reason why that story is so important is it shows the absolute favor and, and, um, and love of the king for this chosen man who is Mordecai. And Mordecai, who is a Jew, it, just, it means basically that, that Haman's plan is not going to succeed. How can you kill now this man who has just been favored. And then so when Haman comes home and tells his wife a story, his wife says, we're doomed. Your plan is not going to work, right? God is obviously with Mordecai. And that's exactly what happens. Haman is executed and God's people are rescued. We're not going to read the passage, but uh, that's it. Um, exciting story. Any questions on that? I did it. Three minutes, Esther. <laughs> um, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for your word. Um, your word is powerful, double-edged sword. It cuts into our hearts. It reveals our hearts. Um, it challenges us. Um, we see in the depiction of the people and their sins, we see our own story. Um, so cause us to repentance, but cause us to give us a great hope that we look to Jesus Christ, we look to his return, we look to the fullness and the pouring out of the Spirit even more so um, than what we have now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.